Hello, this is Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, you know, fire, flammables, an album that bumps eternally. And this week, we're finally returning to our Art of Sampling series, first begun with discussions of James Brown's In the Jungle Groove and Nas's Illmatic. Today, we'll be geeking down and geeking out to one of the definitive sample build albums of the 21st century, Jay Dilla's Donuts. I've written this intro five times. Brevity may be the source of wit, but it's not my strong suit. You probably know that if you've been listening to Heat Rocks for a while. But so as not to overdress one of my favorite albums of all time, I'll keep it simple. In the summer of 2005, James DeWitt Yancey, sonic chef, scientist, and according to The Guardian, the Mozart of hip-hop, took a Boss SP-303, a 45 record player, a marquee-level collection of samples, his own numbered days, and put his parting words into 31 tracks for Stone's Throw Records. The album's release and his passing three days earlier was a moment. The moment me and a lot of folks went from fan to like big fan to like I stan. The moment Jay Dilla was canonized. It's widely known that hearing is thought to be the last sense to go in the dying process. Donuts is a testament to that. Somehow Jay Dilla heard a way to make Jadakiss, Raskas, and Dionne Warwick sound good together. Somehow he heard a way to make Luther Ingram, Mantronics, and Nas sound good together. Somehow he heard a way to make the Detroit Emeralds and the Beastie Boys sound good together. He was hearing things. So was I. All kinds of smart people have had all kinds of smart things to say about this album. But hell, I'm the one who had to write this intro, and I found myself struggling to find adjectives to describe this album as something other than a heat rock. You know, fire, flammables, an album that bumps eternally. So I'll call it a Bismarck, which I learned today is a jam-filled donut. This album is indulgent and sticky and finishes too quickly, just like its namesake. For me, that's no problem. Mama's got a sweet tooth. Today's guest, Nate Patron, had this to say about donuts. Quote, Dilla not only drew from his life and everything he'd learned, he condensed every possible future he could have made for himself into the album's kaleidoscopic scope of sound, unquote. And that is from Nate's new book, Bring That Beat Back, How Sampling Built Hip-Hop, just released this summer by the University of Minnesota Press. And within it, Nate traces a deeply researched and insightful lineage of how sampling became not just a sideshow, but a dominant form of musical production over the past 40 years, beginning with the pioneering hip-hop DJs of the 1970s in New York and ending, appropriately enough, with the parallel careers of Dilla and Madlib. It's a must-read for fans of hip-hop, of course, but I also think it's an intriguing reflection on pop music production, its techniques, its meanings, and its affect. Nate is a prolific music journalist, having penned for everyone from Pitchfork to Spin, Stereo Gum to the Minneapolis City Pages, shout out to Alt-Weeklies, and it is our sincere pleasure to have him to join us with this sampling series installment. Nate, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's an honor to be on the show. 
So let's start with the question we always begin with, which is basically how people came across the album. But I feel like in this case, given the distance, I mean, this is Dilla's last album. So why don't we begin with the question of how did you first get introduced to JD himself? That's a good question because I started really hearing his uh, stuff, just uh, his earliest productions pretty much as they came out because he first really started getting uh, nationwide attention, uh, I believe, for uh, the uh, work he did on uh, the Far Side's uh, 95 album, Lab Cabin, California. Yeah. So if you've you know ever seen that, you know, uh, walking that backwards walking video for drop, which is, you know, a, uh, a classic of the, I believe that was the Spike Jones uh, video filmography. That's, a, you know, that was a Dilla beat. And then the following year is when he started like getting around the kind of like the native tongues sort of orbit who had already, you know, I had already, you know, been a fan of like Daylon Tribe Called Quest by, you know, the time I was out of high school, you know, uh, early mid nineties. So uh, that's how he heard, you know, Dela's stakes is high and uh, like uh, Dilla's work, uh, or he was JD then, but uh, his work on, uh, yeah, beats rhymes in life. He was doing this more low key sort of sound that would eventually, I think, be streamlined into uh, neo soul. I want to come to Morgan's initial impressions of, of JD in that moment, just to share mine. I had certainly been aware of his, his, of his name, thanks to the work that he did, as we've been talking about on Farside and, and Dela, and, sorry, not Dela, uh, well, actually, I guess Dela as well, but really Tribe and, and Farside initially in the mid nineties. But I did not get a sense of the kind of like, oh my God, you need to hear this person until the Slum Village album began to make its initial rounds. And this was before the kind of tortured history around why that initial debut LP got pushed back by a number of years. But it it was just like, I felt like, you know, this was probably, if I have the timeline right, maybe like the early years where the OK Player uh, message board and website was was beginning to blow up and creating a community of like-minded listeners. And Dilla from an relatively early, maybe not right out the gate, but kind of in that early end of his first act, beginning of his second act, part of his career, there was such a kind of reverence that people had for him. He was kind of one of those, your favorite producers, favorite producer type situations, which is why when I finally was able to hear the the first Slum Village album, uh, I got to interview the group. And so I I got a, a copy of the advance. I think my expectations were set so high that it was almost inevitable that I was going to be let down a little bit by it because I was, ex- I, know, I don't know what exactly is what I was expecting, but I was expecting to have my mind blown in the way that let's say the best premiere beats might do, because those, those things are like in your face. You think about like the bomb squad and that kind of wall of sound that we've talked about on, on the show. That's not Dilla style. And so I wasn't really anticipating this sort of softness to it, but as time has gone by, and we'll definitely come back to this point later, that's exactly what I began to appreciate the most about Dilla's, the subtlety of his production. Things you do, don't sell yourself to 
Morgan, how about you? What was your original introduction to JD and what were your impressions of him? Well, like um, Nate was saying, at the time I wasn't really, uh, you know, a production. I wasn't really focused in on production as much as like, this is my jam, that's my jam. Sure. I think I had a sense of him on Beats, Rhymes, and Life because I remember thinking the sound of that album was different than I thought tribe albums should sound, I mm-hmm. guess I would say. Mm-hmm. And I loved I loved two songs from that album. One was Once Again, Tammy Lucas, and the other one was Stressed Out with Faith Evans. Yeah. And I thought they were so so chunky. Um, and that's a word that'll come up a lot today because when I think of Jay Dill, I always think of chunk, chunky and chunky and funky, mm. right? Mm. Um, but the, but it was the sound of that album that I was like, hmm, okay. And then of course, as Nate mentioned, um, the Far Side, Lab Cabin, California, Drop, Running, Couldn't Get Away From Those, or the videos. I think I started to hone in, and I'll say really hone in, two points. One I'll discuss a little bit later, but for now, I really started to pay attention to his production style around Mama's Gun. Mm. Mama's Gun was a point where I was like, okay, this is some, to me, sort of the marriage between lo-fi, um, rare grooves and neo soul is the intersection and this is the dude behind sort of that he, he's giving something to the sound he's giving a warmth and a texture mm. that's when I really started to be like okay I, I know this is a larger soulquarians thing but there's a visionary behind the soulquarians he's the one that's showing up with the records I don't recall if I knew a lot about Donuts in terms of what it was about prior to just sitting down and listening to it. And I think my initial impression was, wait, this is just a beat tape. Um, and for me, it I think it certainly gained resonance beyond that because it was obviously the last thing that JD put out before he, he passed away. But it took me, I think, a while to, in a way, I guess, hear it or it being beyond just, okay, here's a bunch of beats that Dilla put together, which in truth, I mean, that is also what it is. It's, it is a bunch of beats that Dilla put together, but it's, it, in a lot of ways is more than that. Um, and I think for more reasons than just that it is his last effort, I think there are other layers there. And I really enjoyed reading a lot of that back history in Nate's book about what makes this more than just like your average beat tape. So Nate, do you want to talk a little bit about number one, your impressions of Donut for yourself, but also some of the ways in which you think this is a beat tape, but yet not, or at least more than? Well, I know that my uh, impressions when it came out, I think it was a, well, it was a kind of a hectic time in my life in that um at the time i was working phone customer service at a bank this is yeah and this is like you know a couple of years before the financial crisis so, so thankfully that was a job i got out of before that all hit but uh <laughs> I, like but i was a year away from turning 30 i was you know feeling kind of aimless in my life and kind of you know just getting by living with a roommate kind of uh in a in a you know, inexpensive apartments. It, it was kind of like the archetypal millennial experience, except I'm like four years older than the oldest millennial. So uh, I don't know, maybe it's more of a universal modern condition for a lot of folks. But anyways, um, it hit like w- during a time that didn't feel like a great time for music for me, especially in retrospect, because the industry was re- like really flagging and reeling from uh, you know the whole file sharing conditions and 
most of my favorite records were either super underground stuff, like what you got on Stone's Throw or Definitive Jux or Rhyme Sayers, or sometimes I'd get like a 90s vet like Ghostface or The Coup or even Snoop Dogg who'd put out a strong record. But it also feels like a lot of the mainstream hip-hop, while fun in a lot of ways, just didn't hit much for me at the time. Mm. So that was sort of like the context in which I was trying to feel around and figure out, okay, what is going on at the moment that is really speaking to me? And I wasn't like, you know, in the, in the line for Donuts release day, but at the time it didn't seem that different to some of the other stuff I was really checking with, you know, checking for, particularly around Stones Throw, like the Mad Lib Beat Conductor series. Yeah. And I'd find out, you know, well, and this is like a couple of years after the Champion Sound Records. So by at that point, I'd kind of like gotten the sense, oh yeah, Mad Lib, Dilla, they're kind of like, you know, operating in the, in the same, you know, maybe not necessarily the same lane, but in, you know, adjacent lanes on the same freeway. And since I was like really into these, you know, beat conductor records, donuts just slotted in right along the same way. And then the more I learned about the recording process and what it took to actually put this album together, the more I started to hear all these different elements in it that spoke to the experience of making it and the condition in which uh, Dilla made it. Uh, like it wasn't entirely made in the hospital. I, I know it's like you mentioned, it was a beat tape. It started out as like a, like, I think it was just like 22 minutes and you know, peanut butter wolf of stone's throw heard it and was just losing his mind over it. And like got into, you know, Dilla's ear and, you know, Egon, the general manager at Stones are saying, okay, you got to make this into a longer thing and put it out as an album because this is good. This is like amazing. And that's, that's kind of how it came into being. Like he finished it in the hospital. I think some of those tracks were literally finished a few days before the album came out. And we can talk a bit more about like what the process of making it was, but in the short of it, this is like a beat tape made by somebody who realizes that his resources and his time and gradually his ability are getting very limited yeah. and he's working inside those limitations to create something that is still so expressive and so rule breaking and unexpected that it's, you can see why it's just lingered in the imagination for so long. It's not just, a remarkable record it's one of those like it's almost like an experimental record that caught fire it's like because mm. there's only one song on there working on it that's even more than like like two minutes right right everything else is like a couple minutes they're like they're like sketches but they're very expressive sketches I listened to it a couple of times uh, in the past uh, couple of days, and each time I forgot that I had my media library on shuffle. So I'd start out, and then it'd jump to a different track, and it you know would often take me a couple of seconds. Like, wait a minute, this isn't how it goes. And so that led me to realize I've never actually listened to the album on shuffle intentionally. And would that be a big transformation or just a rearrangement? Because as the beat tape. The segues are put together in a way that 
kind of makes it feel like it flows naturally, but the flow is a choppy one. You don't get too consistent a tempo or a vibe, and that's something I think that it works to its benefit because it keeps, no pun intended, throwing listeners for a loop. I mean, there's all sorts of these momentum-breaking transitions. Like, if this was a DJ set, people was like, what, what, what are these train wrecks? You know, it's, it's almost jarring. But yeah. they all come so fast, they run so short, and they leave an impression that's almost meditative in the way it sticks with you. You know, it's, everything sort of compounds in on itself until you feel like you've spent some time in its brain. Could we talk a little bit about just Dilla's production and approach in general? And not to say that it's monolithic by any means, but really to get at the heart of what made it so memorable. And for me, I think I landed on this, this realization before he passed, but it, it took a while for me to get there. Cause I said before, I didn't really quite understand the hype around the slum village album and look, truth be told, I still kind of don't, but we don't need to get into that. But the point here is that I think more than most other, or maybe any other hip hop producer I can think of, it's that Dilla understood the importance of infusing his productions with some level of, uh, of emotional affect. And I know this may sound simplistic since most people want to make beats that make you feel something, but it, but to me, Dilla's techniques went beyond just the kind of boom bap impact that a good beat has on your, on your body or on your eardrums. I certainly don't think all of his beats were about affect. Um, you know, sometimes he just liked to, to make a sick track to bounce to, but to me, his best productions, the one that are most melon, uh, the most memorable are the ones that evoke this deep sense of melancholy. Uh, and one of my favorite examples is actually one of his earliest productions, which is the remix to far sides. Uh, she said, If there was a melancholy hall of fame for hip hop beats, this would have to be someplace your first ballot in that respect. And I think you can hear some of those similar resonances on many of the beats on Donuts. Um, and the one that immediately comes to mind, which doesn't sound anything like that She Said remix, but still has a sense of melancholy, is the last song on the album, which is um, some people call it the Donuts intro. It's also known as Welcome to the Show, um, which uses this really unexpected 6-8 loop uh, from the group Motherload. Um, mentioning mentioning melancholy as part of as part of his production, I just wanted to add that there are quite a few melancholy moments to me on Donuts, and I say melancholy to me because they're songs that pain me, that hurt yeah. me um, to yeah. listen to, just because I know what his situation is. One of them is Waves. Um, I don't know what forever what whatever the reason is, but whenever I get to get to that song, I need a moment. It's the song that makes me um, the saddest on this album. 
to me it's so it's so mournful. Um, I'm not sure what the sample is for that. It's uh, from a 10 CC song, I believe. Uh, Johnny, don't do it. And then the other the other one is by mm. um, what a flip of the Isley Brothers. I wanna love you, yeah, yeah, over and over again. Common did later on it, I think, on The Shining, mm. um, that album. Let go and let me live inside you. With your mouth, don't say, baby, your thighs do. I want us to arrive too. together. I love it when the weather is wet and sticky. Some what is it that you think is inherent in Dilla's production style mm-hmm. that has made him so memorable amongst hip-hop heads? I think the thing that people like to go for the most is the fact that he didn't quantize his beats. He didn't, you know, mechanically, you know, sort them out. So everything just clicked perfectly on the one he would, you know, punch them in manually in MPC. So he'd still have the, you know, momentum of the rhythm going, but it felt more handmade. It felt like, you know, somebody playing the drums as a sampler. And that's, you know, uh, again, it's the thing that got, uh, that got, uh, Questlove so so you know bugged out is like how can you do that on a beat and still make it work because that's what he did I came to check for um, his production and really pay attention to his production as I mentioned um, later with Mama's Gun, but the first time I thought, you know, I got a little tingly, tingly feeling was when I heard his remix of the Brand New Heavies. I was a huge Brand New Heavies fan, huge fan of Acid Jazz, and he re- remixed their song um, sometimes. And actually, that was a game changer for me because while I liked the original, um, his take on it sort of swooned me out. And Christian, if we could just hear the original. So as I said, Chunky was going to come up a little bit more, and that's the way that I can describe it beyond the obvious. It's funky and chunky. But the other thing that came up to me, what I thought of it, is uh, the way I described it was it was subtly aggressive. And when I found out later, courtesy of who sampled, what he used to flip it, which was which is a song by the Lewis Hayes group, Dance With Me, and that he only used like four seconds of it. 
think what he was able to do with samples and with records is as much science as it is art. And and speaking of that, I, one of the interviews I found was Erica sitting down with our friend Egon to talk about Dilla um, and his work, particularly um, his process on Mama's Gun. I met him through Common. Common and he were good friends. And uh, I went to Detroit and... Uh, because I wanted him to be on my album. I didn't know in what kind of way, and you always just hope that something works out great. If nothing, you have a good friendship with the, with the person. And um, we went in the basement, and every wall from floor to ceiling was records categorized. He was a scientist. Like, if you open his refrigerator, all the Coke cans were turned the same way. It looked like a graveyard. It was perfect. You know, everything was perfect. Um... But he let me pick out some records, and it, there are so many records I had never heard before in my life. Um, one was a Tarika Blue record. And it became, um, didn't you know? did he let me pick the record he let me pick the spot in the record and taught me how to sample the the portion of the song that's where I got my first sampling lesson from Dylan we will be back with more of our conversation with author Nate Patron about Donuts by Jay Dilla. After you hear a brief word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts, keep it locked. Fairhaven's a city in a bubble, an actual bubble. It keeps the monsters out, most of them anyway. I never liked the look of movies on Blu ray. For my money, Betamax is the superior format. I'm thinking of deleting Facebook and going back to MySpace. As far as beverages go, I'm just kind of over water. Though I guess at any given party, you're going to meet some dudes like that, even if you're not in the middle of a nightmarish wasteland. Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. Hey, you like movies? What about coming up with movie ideas over the course of an hour? Because that's what we do every week on Story Break, a writer's room podcast where three Hollywood professionals have an hour to come up with a pitch for a movie or TV show based off of totally zany prompts. Like that time we reimagined Star Wars based on our phone's autocomplete. Luke Skywalker is a family man and it's Star Wars, but it's a good idea. (laughs) How about that time we broke the story of a bunch of Disney Channel original movies based solely on the title and the poster? Okay, Sarah Hyland is a 50-foot woman. Let's just go with it, guys. Or the time we finally cracked the Adobe Photoshop feature film. Stamp tool is your Woody, and then the autofill oh, is the new Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Join us as we have a good time in matching all the movies Hollywood is too cowardly to make. Story Break comes out every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I don't know why I'm using this voice now. And we are back on Heat Rocks talking 
Dilla's Donuts with our guest, Nate Patron. Before we dip back into donuts specifically, I have to ask this question, which is one of the things that has always surprised me about Dilla has been the following, and I'm tempted to say cult-like, <laughs> I don't think that's inaccurate, that has emerged around him. And this may have existed previous to his passing, but it absolutely manifested, I think, in a big way after his passing. That is really unlike any other producer that I can think of. You know, one of the big things that I saw pop up, you know, in the weeks and months after he died was the t-shirts that wrote, you know, that read Jay Dilla changed my life. And I have never seen someone wear a DJ Premier change my life or Pete Rock change my life or Diamond D change my life. And these are all important, influential producers, but Dilla is the only one in which people have this really intense fandom for I mean, I've jokingly described it as the Dilla industrial complex because <laughs> I don't, I don't personally identify with it. I mean, I have crazy mad respect for Dilla and his work, but I never thought of his work as being life-changing for me personally. I would love to just understand from Nate, from your point of view, if you have one on this, what is, the, what is it about Dilla that has drawn this kind of very particular form of fandom that feels very unique to me um, amongst other hip hop producers well i think part of it is what morgan got at is that yeah he has this very upfront emotional vibe in a lot of his best beats that i think connect in ways that few other producers really can't i mean there are obviously exceptions i mean if you don't feel something when you hear you know they reminisce over you come on then i don't know what to tell you but <laughs> i think when um yeah, I think just there is this something about the fact that he had that like like very undisguised ability to really get, you know, pair up like the melancholy vibe with the uh you know with the kind of almost off-kilter kind of propulsion to his beats that I think really got it a very fascinating sort of stylistic you know dichotomy uh where it's like you, you nod your head but it's also kind of yeah you know kind of staring out the window at a, a you know rainy day kind of well i i, I mean and I, this is a, inevitably we're gonna have to bre broach the subject of the lo-fi hip-hop beats to study and chill to phenomenon on youtube because a lot of those beat makers uh really do draw from a, a kind of a uh, Dillaoid sort of uh, totally no yeah, absolutely sort of yeah. feeling, um, and then there's the other there's the the obvious factor of the fact that he was working for so long, but that he had so far to go and so much he could have done, and I think there's also just the the, the fact that he wasn't as famous in his time as Pete Rock or DJ Premier, and so it's almost like making up for you know people maybe not giving him his flowers when he could still smell them. I mean, uh, the funny thing about Dilla is that so many of the records that he worked on, you know, especially in the early prime of his career, were very divisive and very, you know, contentious. I mean, people... Right, right. You know, people might have been on the fence about, like, you know, like, I loved Stakes is High. Some people might not have liked it as much because it was, you know, the De La's first album with Prince Paul and some of it was a bummer. Or... Uh, Without Prince Paul, you mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. His first without Prince Paul, and or like he did. Oh yeah, the you know, first Tribe Called Quest album with an you know outside producer, and 
then he, you know, he was on the love movement and that was like their, you know, super unhappy breakup record where nobody right. was really, you know, given a hundred percent just felt you know bad about it. I mean, for all the albums that Dilla did that were like right in the, you know, critically acclaimed Neo soul wheelhouse, there is at least like a one-to-one ratio of ones where you like tried something wild that people weren't really, you know, messing with or even necessarily ready for that. And just people didn't get it. I think a lot of the legend around him has to do with um, everything he touched from a production standpoint, but also what he did and, and who he did it for. And so I think in, Diga, in Dilla's legacy, we've got, we've got these great albums. We've got his association with Common and Erica and Tribe and The Far Side and Slum Village and Janet Jackson and mm. D'Angelo and The Roots and Bahamadia. And not just his greatness, but these great albums associated with him. I do also think that um, all of us have a recognition that he was a cut above the rest. And when we consider other beat makers, and I don't mean less—I don't mean by any means to say lesser beat makers, but other beat makers, there's something about the way um, that he crafted and constructed his beats that puts him in a in an upper echelon category. And I think outside of this, Dilla's death for me was the first time I paid attention or I caught notice of music snobbery and what I like to call um, legacy hoarding. That everyone wanted to be the person that, oh, you don't know this, you don't know this, or you only heard Donuts, but you didn't hear, hear J Loves Japan, or you didn't you, you don't know Welcome to Detroit, the instrumentals, or you don't know the J Lib album. It was the first time I paid attention that people were weaponizing J Dillon knowledge against each other. So part of the fanship, out of the fanship grew this sort of, you know, snobbery, a group of, of, of Dilla aficionados who you know, put themselves in their in their own category. And I don't think any of us can claim to be experts on Dilla because I think we're still we're still getting to know him. That the more you mm. listen to him, the more you learn about him. So you, you have never arrived with Dilla, that there are still things, you know, to understand and uh, about this man and about his work. Well, let's take this deep back into Donuts itself. And as always, okay. we're going to start with the tough question, especially in an album that had this many tracks. What is the fire track? And Nate, as you are our guest, I'm going to put you in the hot seat first. Wow. I mean, picking a favorite moment on Donuts almost seems like it's almost beside the point. It's like picking the favorite scene in, you know, a, you know, a Scorsese movie or some such. It's like there's so many. I mean, it almost seems like the kind of the cop-out answer because it's the one track that actually has that sort of song length feel to it. Working on it really does feel like a fantastic way to transition from the sort of introductory aspect of the rest to the rest because it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's the longest track, but it's got all these funny little like deeks or loop fakes. Like I kind of mentioned how he kind of just completely messes with the preconceptions and ideas of how a loop is supposed to play out on a song so that it, it's a standout track that's also kind of like the introduction to the world you're about to find yourself immersed in. Morgan, how about you? I'm working on um, a project now, a forthcoming film. And uh, have been going back and forth on a scene where uh, the creative brief says, find a scene for this character 
um, where in the in the film she's asked, um, "What's the song that you go deaf to?" And for me, the song on Donuts that I'd risk my hearing for is "Work on It." Um, mm. Everything that he said about it is really, really true. Um, it just gets me amped. And after the the intro, Dilla, 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 that he goes right mm. into that is just a hell of a way to start the album. It gets me hyped. It gets me amped. It's quirky. Um, all the things that I love about it. That's how do you pick a favorite? I don't know, but that's the one that gets me so excited for everything that is to come. You know, this was a, a tough choice, again, because there's so many songs to choose from and so many beats on here are fire. So trying to narrow it down to just one is is rough. Um, if I had to pick an honorable mention, I would have gone with MASH because mm. of those Galt McDermott piano melodies. Mm. In terms of just pure, let me go out and just start setting stuff on fire. I got to go with Geek Down. I <laughs> yes. think it's it's possibly the hardest beat I've I associate with Dilla this side of his Fuck the Police beat. Oh, and yeah. on this album in particular, Geek Down is just that straight up punch to the face. Uh, yeah, and I love, yeah, that's definitely in the running for one of my favorite tracks, but it's also, I like to think about the uh, you know, choice of sample. It's this group, it's Adrian Utley and Jeff Barrow from Portishead basically doing this B-side called Charlie's Theme that sounds like a uh, sort of exploitation film theme from the 70s. You know, sometimes you don't need to do something super complicated to really bring out the most in a source. Uh, so the official, the official definition of sample is, quote, a small part or quantity intended to show what the whole is like. So my question for you, Nate, is do you have a favorite sample on the Donuts album? And also, which song on this album shows best the whole of Jay Dilla as a producer? Uh, yeah, I really do think the uh, the Jackson Five song that was sampled for "Time the Donut of the Heart" that was just a yeah that, that's that sitar loop. And then like kind of like time shifts somewhere in the middle so he like really stretches it out 
I think it's a kind of partially a like a little little technical effect and also a bit of a, a little emotional jolt too. I mean, in thinking about this too, I mean, I, I mentioned MASH before, but I just think that I like a good piano loop period, number one, but just the way in which you create MASH out of this, this chop of that little bit of, of, of Galt McDermott and it's, it's simultaneously, it's a little bit dissonant. There is something a bit harsh to just the sound of the piano in the loop. But just what you're able to build from that, I think, is really remarkable. So that really jumps to my mind immediately. Though I think one of my favorite sort of sample uses, um, which coincides with just one of my favorite moments listening to the album, is at the very beginning of Airworks, where you initially hear that LV Johnson sample drop in, but then the needle skips, and it's like they reset the stylus back to the beginning of the group, a groove. Morgan, how about you? How, how would you answer your own question? <sighs> the answer to my question is also my favorite, my favorite moment. And one of my favorite moments on the album is, is the change in tempo and temperature on Don't Cry. Mm. Because on that song, mm. it feels like the lead vocal and the background vocals are two people in a relationship. Listening to Dilla, he reminds me of how much I have to learn about records. And he does it in a way that I think is so gracious. It's an invitation. It's not just like, like let me let me flex my, my muscle. Or as you said, Nate, he's not just an obscurity hunter. That it just feels like an open invitation to see, like, there are so many interesting things about this album, besides that this is a, this is a great album to sample. But look at this part and look at that part. And that's what I think about Don't Cry. It's the start and finish of the song. It's the way it changes up. And I love a good change-up. This has popped into my mind, but one of the things that I really appreciate about the tracks on Donuts is, in particular, their brevity. I mean, we've talked a little, mm -hmm. you know, a lot about, actually, just in terms of how relatively short these things are. You have some things on this that are, you know, well under a minute and very few things that are over two. And there is sometimes, I think, a desire to just, you want more from it. Like, it ends too soon. And I, I very rarely ever feel that about anything I hear on donuts that I feel like they're exactly as long as they need to be. Um, and not a moment longer and not a, a moment shorter. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, I think that's a tough thing to pull off, especially with so many terse tracks. I mean, I suppose it helps is they, they are for the most part, purely instrumental, even though you have voices being sampled. Um, it makes it a little bit easier to hear them shorter because you're not expecting like a 16 or 32 bar verse from somebody. But nonetheless, just the, the ultimate brevity of it, I think, works really well. And especially because the the main, I think the only medium that I have this album on, I don't have it on CD or LP. I have it on cassette. And this is a really great album to listen to on cassette um, hmm. it, for whatever reason. And, and I, I guess I could try to think through why, but for me, it just works really well. Maybe because I know it's it, it started as a beat tape, so to literally listen to it on cassette tape kind of makes sense. But I think the brevity of it also works with the medium very well. Yeah, it can fit on a single side of a C90, so... Yeah, exactly. Shout out to cassettes, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as, as 
as this episode will bear out, there are many things to love about Dylan and many levels to his greatness. But I also want to mention that I think what adds to his greatness is the great things that others have been able to do over his beats separate um, from him. One of my favorite examples of this is an artist and a former guest of ours named B. Slade and what he did with Dylan's beat called Fantastic uh, from Slum Village's Fantastic Volume 1. So, Christian, if you could play a little bit of the original beat. Okay, and now here's what B. Slade did it with did with it on a song called Jesus Saves. To date, I think that's the only gospel song um, that samples um, samples Dilla. It was, it was a nice surprise to find out that that was the case, and I had an opportunity to to, to guest host for a show on KPFK called Edna, Edna Tatum's Gospel Classics, and I was excited to drop that in. Uh, my other favorite flip of his is the Honorable Georgia Ann Muldrow and her treatment of Untitled Fantastic, and there is a beautiful video online of her creating her flip of that where she's got her baby son sitting on her lap and uh, and she gets into it really beautiful. You see her doing her piano, you see her lay her vocals in, all while the baby's on her lap. And uh, those are just two examples of, of people taking um, great works from Dilla and making greatness themselves. I love this question. And the one, the example that immediately comes to mind is from the Sweet, uh, Sweet for Ma Duke's uh, EP that Miguel Atwood Ferguson and Carlos Nino put together um, now probably about 10, more than 10 years ago that B plus also was involved in shout out to Brian. And it's their cover of fall in love, which is I first mm-hmm. saw debuted live at the suite for Ma Duke show that was at Cal state LA. Um, and a friend of mine, my friend, Patrick, um, uh, DJ Patrick who was also on our show before when he got married. And this was actually exactly 10 years ago. His, 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 he just celebrated, uh, the, their 10th year anniversary. This was their recessional music. And I thought it was freaking perfect. It is. It doesn't have the the boom bap factor that the original Slum Village Fall in Love has, which I think is very memorable about the original song. But to go back to something I was saying in the first half, what what the two uh, men did with Fall in Love is captured, I think, the affect of the song beyond just the fact that it's got a really good drum loop. And by removing the drums from it and instead focusing on the melodic elements that went into that original Fall in Love. Uh, which is taken from a Gap Mangione 
sample might be the only gap Mangio sample that's really worth talking about. Wow. Regardless, I just think what they did with it was was utterly, utterly sublime. So I love this question. I think that, again, that's the first example that comes to mind. Um, Nate, we didn't prep you with this, but is there a flip on a Dilla track that comes to your mind as being one of your favorites? That's a good question. Um, and I think, uh, well, we, I just spent all this time talking about, uh, well, we, we spent all this time talking about Geek Down. A couple years later, here comes, uh, you know, Murder Goons, the Ghostface track that, uh, that built off of it. Nate, if you had to describe donuts in three words, what would you choose? Hmm. Loops as memories. Yes. It feels, feels like a sort of autobiographical album in the end because it was like you're, you're trying, like, I think when a lot of people talk about Oh, like when you're dying, your life flashes before your eyes. Like if that if that's the kind of knowledge that's behind this record, it feels like he's sort of like wants to round up a sort of culmination of everything he's experienced and learned and wanted to transmit further out into the world, sort of both as a uh, attempt to sort of make up for this future lost time as well as sort of take a trip down you know, memory lane and just kind of try to preserve his experiences. Well, if our audience members loved this particular album as much as clearly the three of us do, we have some recommendations for what you should check out next. Uh, I'll kick it off. And we've talked a little bit about this in the first half, especially, but go back to the 1995 Farside album, Lab Cap in California. And I think you can hear, even at the very beginning of his professional career, Dilla had something really going for himself and his sound, even though, and we've also touched on this same point, a lot of us, myself included, probably didn't recognize it enough for what it was at the time. But I think one of the great testaments to how good those production um, stylings were on that album is that this album to me has aged really, really well. Uh, And at this point in time, I probably prefer listening to Lab Cabin California over listening to Bizarre Ride to the far side, not because I think mm. Bizarre Ride is, is crap by any means, but if I just need a vibe to roll with, I'm definitely going with Lab Cab in California, partly because of the contributions that Dylan made on it. Morgan, how about you? Uh, I would say um, if you like donuts, then get into Knowledge's album Cauliflower uh, that was released in 2013. Um, He's one of the upstanding members of this next generation of beat makers, and there are so many burners on this album. You will obviously recognize the influence here, Dilla's influence, especially on tracks like Como Te Amo, which is one of my favorite uh, favorites. One of the things I love about Knowledge as a beat maker is I love how he hangs behind the beat, how he complicates your discovery. 
by layering samples and snippets, just like Mr. Yancey. Control nine planets with the And Nate, how about you? What do you think our audience members should check out post donuts? Well, uh, first off, co-signing both your choices. I really like both those, both those artists, both those records. But I think going back to another Dilla record and one of the handful of post-mortem records, I mean, there is well, uh, one of the handful of post-mortem records worth listening to. There's way more than a handful of post-mortem records, some of which are interesting little archive trawls, some of which are a little dicey. Uh, but Jay Stay Paid from 2009 is probably as good as you're going to get without actually having to go back to like the you know MCA shelved album, for instance, Pay Jay. Uh, this is this is the um, probably the best actual collaborative uh, sort of all star uh, record in that Pete, Pete Rock actually curated uh, the record. He assembled a bunch of instrumentals, some of which hadn't been heard before, some of which were just like obscurities and oddities, and they all compiled this record, and it just goes. I mean, it's it's really heavy on guest raps from a very interesting wide spectrum of you know circa 2009 i mean you've got havoc and raekwon on one track you've got black thought on another you've got doom on another one so you've got this broad range of styles but it also has like a really good detroit representation you know you have appearances from like fat cat frank nitty you've got a still emerging danny brown on one of the best tracks on the whole record so it's a good time even with the whole sense of loss undercurrents to it promises still living in the same hood where my mama is smoke like i'm trying to find where a coma is jim star show your jaw what a comma is fuck with brown dog show you where the drama is it might be easier to snatch obama kids take a nigga out quicker well that will do it for this episode of heat rocks with our special guest author nate patron whose new book Bring That Beat Back, How Sampling Built Hip Hop is out now. Nate, where can people find you out there on the interwebs? Well, I do a lot of freelancing and writing. Uh, I'm a regular on Stereo Gum, and I also write for Bandcamp Daily. And if you're interested in uh, seeing how I can uh, describe some of my favorite 70s jazz fusion tracks in as few words as possible, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Twitter at, at N-A-T-E-P-A-T-R-I-N. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.